Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you so much for joining us again today. This is a personal treat for me. I have a dear, dear friend, a man of God. I think the first pastor that I've had on, uh, I take that back. I had Steve Bonnenberger on a pastor out in California, but a pastor friend of mine. And when this man shares his powerful story of divine healing, he's going to become a friend of yours. He is the pastor of Calvary Tabernacle in Accident, Maryland. He is a father of three boys, but he is an incredible guy. I'm not going to mention that he's a lifelong West Virginia Mountaineers fan. We'll just put that aside. We've had enough conversations over the years about that because I bleed green and he bleeds blue and gold. But but I, I have a deep respect and love for this man, Pastor Pascal Kreitz, joining me today on the Intentional Encourager Podcast. Pascal, how are you doing today, bud? I'm doing wonderful blessed of the Lord. And I'm just honored at the invitation to be here with you today, my friend. Well, I knew we saw each other a couple of weeks ago and I said, man, you've got to come on my podcast because your story and we, we will get to it. It is worth staying for. When, when I look at Pascal, I know that anything is possible with the Lord. And so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you know, Pascal and I believe in a healing God. Sure. We believe with all of our heart in a healing God. And so I can't wait. And we will get there, folks, in telling his story. But I want to start here with you, Pascal. The last 16 months or so has been, everybody has had different experiences, I'll say, around COVID-19 and things like that. What has the past 16 months or so been like for you personally and in pastoring a church through COVID-19? Extremely challenging, without question, and I'm sure that uh, every other pastor would say the, th the same things when it comes to shutdowns and things like that. You know, we unfortunately had, you know, people as well that contracted COVID. I had COVID. My wife had COVID. It went through my family back uh, in the early fall of last year. And just all of the restrictions and having to do things different ways and live streams and things like that. And being really just that feeling of being disconnected from what you're used to and so forth. So it was without question the most challenging time. But I'm thankful that the Lord has brought us through. I'm thankful we are where we are now, knowing that whatever happens, the Lord said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. But it is good without question to, to be able to worship back together uh, again after what was no doubt a tumultuous 2020 ups and downs and sickness and things like that. How did your mode of preparation change? Because your church like ours and, and your, your dear, dear friends with my pastor in Charleston, West Virginia, how did your mode of operation change? Because every week, you know, you, you have service um, during the week and you have service on Sunday and, and you have multiple campuses that you're overseeing as well. 
now everything goes from being all in person and making sure everything is in the right places to everything being virtual. How was that for you from an organizational standpoint? What did you have to kind of pivot quickly to get your arms around when you guys had to go to live stream and things like that as in-person worship was curtailed for a period of time? Well, it involved lots of moving parts, you know, making sure that you had the skeleton crew that you were allowed to have that could, you know, make sure that you had some instrumentation that could get us, you know, uh, to worship in, in to lead us into worship and things like that. Had to make sure that the promotion of it was right so people knew what we were doing, knew at what times we were doing to try to get it out even to the public and, and things like that. Preparation of it. Uh, I, I prepared the same way to preach then as what I do now. The difference of it being you're preaching, you know, we, we, of course, it was live from the sanctuary with a bunch of empty pews looking at you. Mm -hmm. I think for me, that was the most challenging thing because I like to connect with people that I'm preaching to. I like to look at their faces and see the spirit of the Lord moving on them and things of that nature. And when you're just looking at pews, you just got to have a new level of faith that number one, I've heard from the Lord. Number two, he has blessed my preparation. And number three, I've got to trust God that he is doing his thing on the outside of this while I'm doing my best to preach to a camera and a bunch of empty pews. I love what you said there about the purpose of preparation and making sure that everything was as it needed to be because Again, you and I are apostolics, and, and, and as apostolics, the difference between us and, and a lot of other denominations out there is that, that we are very different in our style of worship. Right. We're very, we, we are intentionally different in the way we worship, and it's not to slight anyone no. else. It, no. is, it is, that's the difference that we have in in. in the way we worship and, and how we worship people. And, and I've loved this. People have told me, they said, you know, they met me. They said, you're Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> you don't swing from the chandelier. I said, listen, <laughs> you think there's a chandelier made that would hold a six foot three, 275, 70 pound body. I said, I'm built like an NFL tight end. I said, man, if there's a chandelier built like that, man, I want it in my house because yeah, you know, but, but the thing of it is we're exuberant in worship. We, yes. we believe in instrumentation and, and things yes. like that. And so there is something dynamic about an in-person in, in service, and you go to that. But I love what you said there, Pascal, about preparation. What did you learn about preparation through this that was kind of that V8 moment, if you will, of, hey, man, this is something I can take moving forward as well, too? Yeah, I learned that through prayer and seeking after God and seeking his face that you could hear him clearly. And he would give you definite direction at times down to what songs need to be sung and things of that nature that would minister to those who the Lord, of course, we already know knew who was going to be on the live stream and preparing in such a fashion that when we open, and this was powerful, that you're singing to an empty building, you're preaching to an empty building, but it became really what church really is. We can have a packed building with hundreds of people, but it still should be about an audience of one. Mm -hmm. 
And that audience that we show up for is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So when we sing, we're singing for one. And when we preach, we're preaching for one. And it allowed us really to prepare for what church was all about. And that is we're putting something together to entertain the one that is in the building, not to entertain 200 or 300 or 400 or 500 or whatever it might be, but you're preparing to entertain an audience of one and to give him glory. And now when we're back in-house, it became the same thing. When we show up, we're thankful for everybody. We're thankful beyond thankful for the family of God, but it still remains. We're coming because there's an audience of one that we seek after. There's one that we look to to help us, and that is what's continued. You know, what you're really talking about there and what I'm hearing so strong in what you're saying is connection, is connecting with because you couldn't hug those people's necks you couldn't love on them like a, a pastor should do for no. their congregation. You, you know, you, you had to be careful because you have a family to think about yourself, yes, your, your wife and three boys. And it, I'm going to park this question for a minute, but I want to go a little further on connection is, is that it has to feel like that person at home is there in church. Did you learn something about connection in that time as well? that because you've been an evangelist for a number of years, you've traveled to different churches, you, you've, you've now pastored for a number of years, connection's really important to you, but did you learn something about it you hadn't previously thought of before? You know, I did, and what I learned blew my mind, and it might not be huge for everybody else, and everyone else may not even understand it, but I found that God, by his grace and mercy, could give a word to me by his spirit. And then I preached that word to a camera in an empty facility. But then when service is over, and in the days that follow, messages and text messages and phone calls from the congregations of the multiple campuses come in, and how God spoke to them, and how God touched them, and how close God drew himself to them while that service was going on. And it let me know beyond anything else that God is not inhibited by time or by space. It let me know how blessed we are when we are together, but at the same time, when life forces us to be apart where we don't want to be, God is still able to keep us together, to keep his hand upon us, just like in Acts chapter 8, when Saul made havoc of the church and the church was scattered in every place, they went everywhere preaching the gospel and the gospel was furthered because there there became more of a focus on the audience of one than on anything else. And Jesus really, during that time, became the absolute center because there was nothing else to focus on except him. I love what you said there going, going back there because the Bible also tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Even though I haven't seen this global pandemic in my lifetime, we had to go back to 1918 to the Spanish flu to see anything similar to that. And of course, yeah, you know, maybe our kids will look at COVID 
the way we looked at September 11th, 2001, as that defining uh, generational moment in our lives, you know, and, and who knows how history will write this. And it's still being written as, as we continue to talk. I, I want to go here for just a minute. You mentioned you and your wife having COVID. Was there ever a thought around, because you, you've had a health scare, and for many people, um, there were people that were that were affected differently. We lost people that we loved. Yes, through that. But was when when that happened, was there a thought for you around? You know, man, this 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 is bad. This could be bad. Things like that. What was your experience like with it? Because a lot of people had different experience experience with the virus itself. If you don't mind, what was your, what was your experience like? Yes. When I first got the news, of course, I think your human nature kicks in and you realize what could happen. You realize the outcome of other people that are in better shape than you. And you, you hear about all of the stories and things like that. I think the one thing that was just a hair different for me it's it was what i'd been through in 2017 and the uh, the level of faith that i'd seen god do now my experience with covid was rather mild than others my 16 year old had it the worst him and my wife they lost their taste and smell congestion coughing just feeling nasty uh, i it hit me more in exhaustion and weakness. Every mm -hmm. day I was exhausted and weak and trying to do anything just totally took it out of me. Yeah. And so it was it was that way for several weeks. Really, I was just very weak. I was very exhausted. I uh, It took a toll even on my throat, my vocal cords, um, that I, I would lose my voice within minutes following that COVID infection and things like that. So while the actual sickness, I never, by God's grace, had to be hospitalized or anything like that. I, I, it was just an absolute uh, ex exhausting. I just, I just, I couldn't really do anything out of weakness. Did, and again, when you have something, and, and I, we'll go here for just a second and we'll take a, a quick break. But when you're facing something yourself, as a pastor, it's hard for you to focus on the, the other folks because you're trying to get better because everybody needs you. You feel that right. weight of everybody needing you and things like that. How how did you, did your church do do okay with it? Were you guys spared? How how was it living in? Let me go here instead. Sure. What did you see in your community around COVID? that as a pastor either encouraged you or gave you a pause because we saw the best of things through COVID where people were coming together and ministering one to another. And then we also saw some, some not so nice things about it as a pastor. What did you see in your community that encouraged you around the, the COVID-19 pandemic? The, in the church, it did go through our church family. Uh, I did go through, and that was the hardest thing. As a pastor, I almost ended up with a, I don't know what a better phrase is, is like a PTSD every time the phone rang. 
because for weeks, every time the phone rang, it was like, oh, dear Lord, another person or another family or whatever. And you're helpless because you can't go pray for them. You can't go help them. You can't, you're in quarantine yourself. And so it was, it was really tough. I think the thing in the community here in Garrett County, Maryland, which is rural, that encouraged the most is the camaraderie, the neighbors coming together, those who were well, making dinners and making food and taking it, laying it on the porches of people that who were sick and that, that coming together, we had, we had people, I didn't ask them to do it. We didn't put it together, but people took it upon themselves and they were calling each other every single day, checking on each other. What can you do? How are you feeling? Uh, going and buying those little O2 things for the fingers so people could check their, their oxygen, making sure that things weren't where it shouldn't be, picking up medication for each other. That was what was encouraging is that I, I saw people come together and help each other that I never really expected at, at that level. I mean, in that way, that, that was very encouraging. And it, it, it was a huge boost of morale for those that were suffering through it to have people doing that. That's it. That's awesome. That is so cool. I appreciate you sharing that, Pascal. Let's step aside, take a break. When we come back, I want to go a little deeper on what Pascal just said about <laughs> pastors and the stress level that they go through. A lot of you out there that may be watching and listening to this podcast may say, well, I, I own a business. I, I do this. I have a stressful career, things like that. I, I'm telling you, having a dad that was a pastor the last three and a half years of his life, there's a lot of stress that pastors go through themselves. I want to touch on that when we come back. My guest is Pastor Pascal Kreitz from the Calvary Tabernacle and Accident, Maryland. And he is joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast back in just a moment. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Pascal, you mentioned something a minute ago. I've got to go here sure. in, in this segment. I don't think people understand the stresses that pastors go through, especially full-time pastors, because we have seen, and not to, to make light of, of pastors and things like that, but I think the perception that people have of pastors is who they see on television, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, it it is, pastoring is not for the faint of heart. It's not for 
just anybody to take on. That's why the Bible delineates those different roles like it does. And we'll get into your story of how you felt led to pastor here in just a few minutes. But you talk about pastor PTSD, and I, and I appreciate you saying it that way because I think it really puts a – it really makes you stop and think that, man, you know, what happens to my congregation right. truly affects me personally and things like that. What do people not understand at times about pastoring as opposed to being an evangelist? Because, and, and forgive me for a long-winded question, but when you evangelize, you basically parachute in for a few days and you parachute out and yeah. you hope you have, have encouraged and inspired and uplifted those people while you're there. Pastoring, those people become your family those people become a part of you and, and everything is way more personal. What is something that people don't realize about pastoring that, that, that maybe ought to be talked about a little bit more? Well, let me preface that by saying prior to becoming full-time in the ministry, I did evangelize, but I also served as a general manager uh, over a uh, cellular company and agency had 16 locations in four states and uh, I would have been a sales supervisor you were a very there successful was, salesperson too I mean you you yes, you had a lot going on man yeah it was wonderful we had stores in Virginia North Carolina Pennsylvania West Virginia Maryland and whatnot and you were moving up the ladder I mean I, I know let's I don't want to get ahead of ourselves but man you were really moving up the ladder there too so I, I, I want to put some preference around that too yeah, I, I started at first learning and I worked the floor just selling phones and selling accessories and things like that. And then I um, I was being groomed and I became a sales supervisor. From a sales supervisor, I went to a senior sales supervisor and then I was promoted from a senior sales supervisor. Finally, when the general manager left to take another job in another part of the country, they moved me into the general manager over the company. At that point, then the, the my boss became the president uh, of the company. And so that's how that started. But it was, a, it was a wild ride. But God used all that as boot camp for pastoring because it was there that I had to learn teamwork. It was there that I had to learn sales. I had to learn promotion. I had to learn budgeting. I had to learn about money. I had to learn about hiring. I had to learn about firing. I had to learn about putting together a team, what worked, what didn't work. And so for all the years that I did that, little did I know that it was a preparatory ground of becoming a pastor. Man, oh man. And, and, and I want to dive into that here in just a few minutes because I, I love that that training part of it and things like that. And people don't understand that the things you do in life will prepare you to be a pastor. But then again, pastoring doesn't prepare you for anything else. No. You, you really have to understand it. You know, when when you look at pastoring, people today. What is the biggest, and I mentioned it a moment ago, but in your mind, what is the biggest difference between pastoring and being a traveling evangelist? An evangelist, my sole responsibility was to get a word from the Lord 
try to go in that night and have the Lord bless me to bless that specific church and those people and, and strengthen the hands of the church to wash the spiritual feet of the church. But then when it was over, it was done. And I went, I went someplace else as a pastor. I am responsible for making sure that as a watchman on the wall, according to the book of Ezekiel of the Old Testament, that I have to warn them against sin. I've got to warn them about impending dangers that will trip up and deceive them. I have to, as a shepherd, I have to, an under shepherd, I have to protect them with a rod and the staff that the Lord gives me. I have to be there when they're sick. I have to, as a pastor, there, there, it is not a career. It is a calling. I firmly believe that, that pastoring is a calling. It is not a career. And if you're not called to be a pastor, run away from it as fast as you can. Because when you go to bed, you go to bed. Did, did I say the right thing? Marriage is in trouble. Suicidal people. People dealing with all kinds of things in life from, from the devil and everything else. And like a doctor would go to bed, I'm sure, concerned that I give them the right medication, that I do the right thing. There's that stress level of, dear God, did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? Because people's lives, heaven and hell, hang in the balance. And you can't be off, and you can't be flippant, and you can't be reckless when it comes to advice, when it comes to the messages you preach, because as a pastor, you're going to stand before God and give account of everything you said. And those you pastor, you're going to have to answer for everything you did while you pastored them. Well, it, and Pascal, it, it's like a doctor diagnosing themselves because there are times, and, and this is what I don't think people realize about pastors, is that pastors need a pastor themselves. Absolutely. Because when doctors... You know, doctors are humans too. They have sure. physical ailments and things like that. And so they they connect with other doctors that go, hey, man, I, I'm, you know, there's something off or there's something wrong or things like that. And, and, and I think people, listen, I, I think people expect pastors to always have the right thing to say at the right time. Yeah. And it's got to be spot on. And, and we've almost, we've always, we've kind of put pastors. I, I'll say it this way. I think we have put pastors on a pedestal. And, and, and at times it's a good pedestal. And at times it's not a good pedestal because then we hold them to expectations that are far too lofty to uphold. Or there are times that we say, how is that guy pastoring? You know, he doesn't have a clue. You know, I, I was right. looking, for, I was looking for something deep and insightful. And he told me this, man, this, this dude doesn't even have a clue. I don't know that people realize how difficult it was pastoring. How difficult, how difficult was it for you to make that transition from, from evangelizing to pastoring? There was definitely, there, there was definitely growing pains, definitely growing pains because, you know, you, you've got to, what you preach, you've got to, and this should be the, the case for anyone, but when you pastor, 
you all of a sudden you live in a glass house like you never have before. Your kids become in a glass house. Everything you do, everything you say gets watched at. Let me at. let me jump in here. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but but I, I, I am I am fascinated by what you just said there. So I've got to ask you this. How do you protect your family in those situations? Because, you know, it would be easy for us, and I want to preface this this way, Pascal. It's easy if somebody's coming in our house and go, okay, I've got a Louisville Slugger baseball bat right next to the bed, right? and and here's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to take that bat. I'm going to beat this dude senseless that's coming into my house and trying to hurt my family. Or people protect themselves with weapons or things like that. But but your first instinct is it, it's me or him, and, and he's going to be the one in trouble because I'm going to yeah. protect my family. How is it to protect your family as a pastor? Because I, I have to believe that a lot of the times you don't know precisely where the attacks are coming from. Talk about that for just a minute. You're right. There, there are times that, you know, people can get upset with me or over the years and uh, they don't want to come directly to me because you're a pastor. So they'll take it out on the kids or they may take it out on my wife or whatever. What I have done, and I think what's important to do is realize that the Lord could use me to preach salvation and save all of Garrett County. But if I lose my family, I am a failure. If, if 10,000 upon 10,000 are saved and I lose my family, I am not a success. So I try to, like Nehemiah, I try to build the wall around my family. I like to let them know that I love them. Take the boys out, spend time with them, have date nights with my wife where we can have open communication, where we can talk, where dad or husband can pour into them, build walls of protection around them, talk to them when something happens, deal with things as it happens. At the same time, I think the most important thing, at least for me, has been trying by the help of God to build that wall around them through prayer and just through love and keeping the lines of communication and closeness wide open between all of us so they can talk to me. I can talk to them and help them when those times do occur. I got to ask you this before we take a break. Um, you've been pastoring for a number of years now. If, if there was any way possible to go back to when you began to pastoring, you now could step back and you could sit down across the table from yourself, maybe in Morgantown or somewhere, and have a cup of coffee with yourself back then. What do you think there, how do you think that conversation would go? And what would you tell yourself then that you know now? I would say that you cannot absolutely make anybody serve God. I would say that you need to spend your time. You need to invest your time more wisely. Instead of chasing people all the time that don't want it, invest your time in those people that are hungry for more of God and equip them to do the work of ministry instead of at times, especially early on, being distracted by people that were not interested. 
that just wanted time, but they, they, they weren't going to listen to nothing you said. But at that time, you're young, you're fresh, and my God, I'm going to try to save everybody until you realize there are some people that just absolutely are not committed, they're not dedicated, they're not interested, and I would, I would say pour yourself into people that are hungry. Pour yourself into people that are showing that thirst for the things of God. You pour yourself into them, they'll pour themselves into others, and you can start a flow. I, I just wrote that, what you said down. Invest in hungry people. Yes. And, and that's encouragement for anybody, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a business coach, whatever you're doing, if you can invest in people that are hungry to go to that next level, you can really have an impact. And I, I sure. love what you said there, Pascal. That was so good. Let's step aside, take a break. When we come back, I want to tell you about this man's story of divine healing. I know Hallelujah. firsthand because I saw him in a hospital room in 2017. He alluded to it just a moment ago, but I want him to take us through his story. Back with Pastor Pascal Kreitz in just a moment on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up. Kindle, if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of People buy from people. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Pascal, let's go to your story. You mentioned a few moments ago, you alluded to your, your career in sales, a very successful career, I might add, in sales. But take me as far back as you want to go from point A to where we are today, and just tell folks your story. Oh, wow. Um, story is uh, from how far back? I don't go as far. This is your time, man. Go as far uh, back as you want to go. Well, I was. If, it, if, it, if you say it started in a crib in, in <laughs> Upper West Virginia, that's fine with me, man. Yeah, I was born in I'm 77. I'll be 44 uh, this, this month, August. Uh, yeah, our birthdays are not too far apart because I'll be 49 in August. So, I mean, I, I got a few years on me. Yeah, I know. I'm going to hit AARP before you will. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I was born to a wonderful family and how it all started was my grandmother 
immigrated here from Paris. Her name was Paulette Athey. She immigrated here. She was Roman Catholic. And she put herself through WVU, taught herself how to speak English, and began teaching at Frankfurt High School. At this time, I was, I was just a child, you know, just a kid. And while she was at Frankfurt, there was two apostolic young ladies that caught her attention because of the way they lived. They brought their Bibles to school, stuff that she didn't see normal people do. And she thought something is different about these two girls. Their names were Gwen and Kelly. And one night they invited her to a singspiration that they were having at the church in Cumberland at that time was pastored by the late Reverend James Shockey. And she showed up that night, a Catholic lady. But she said, I stepped in that night and I felt something I'd never felt before in all my life. I felt a presence. I felt a power that I'd never felt. At the close of the service, they gave an invitation for people to come up. She went up. When she went up, God gloriously filled her with a baptism of the Holy Ghost. From that moment, she became baptized in Jesus' name. And then she started taking me and my cousin, Robert Fazalor, who pastors in Kaiser, West Virginia, about 35 miles from here, started bringing us to church. And then the same thing happened. We received the Holy Ghost. We got baptized. And then from there, my pastor, uh, Brother Daniel Garlitz, he came from Uniontown, Pennsylvania, to Kaiser, West Virginia, to follow in the footsteps of now the late bishop uh, who started the work in Kaiser, James Williamson. And so there is where I grew. There is where I learned. There is where things were poured into me for 26 years under the ministry of Brother Garlitz and so forth. And it was there I became youth pastor. It was there that I became an outreach director. It was there that I became in our district of West Virginia, our youth secretary, youth president. I followed your pastor as youth president after being his secretary in the youth department. And then it just catapulted from there into then going into sales and to where I am now. I mean, that's just a thumbnail sketch of it. Well, and, and it's interesting because in that little area that you grew up in, in that, in that, uh, in that Frankfurt Kaiser area, yeah, it's remote. It's secluded. Very. It yeah. Kaiser, Kaiser. You have to be going to Kaiser to get to Kaiser. It's yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful part of the state of West Virginia. I highly encourage you to go there. Is it? It's a very beautiful part of the state, but it's remote. As your grandmother began taking began taking you to church, and you and your cousin, and who I know very well. What was your thought process like? Were you were you guys just going okay? We we'll get we we'll get a hangout together, and we're we're gonna go. You know, Grandma wants us to go to church with her, so we're gonna go to church with her. Did you ever have any inclination of what your grandma was was getting you into? I don't think I did at the time, but I remember being six years old, and at that time being awestruck by the preaching. I remember there was a Wendy's that was down not far from the church. And 
on uh, after church services. The church, you know, would go down and they'd eat at Wendy's and get a burger or Frosty or whatever. And I would set up the salt and the pepper shaker as my microphone. And I would stand there at the table and I would preach into the salt and into the pepper shakers at six years old because there was just something in me. I can't explain it, but at five and six years old, I was just awestruck by it. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it was. I, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that I was in awe of it. And uh, it, it just got in the blood. It just got in my spirit, even at the age of a young child. Bro, I felt the presence of God in a frosty before. I'd say that. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt the presence of the Lord just taking in a fr chocolate frosty, you know, sure. but no, that that's good. When, when you, now you, you grow up to be a young man, you, you're, you're a young, you're, you're a young teenager, young adult. Did you, what was your kind of career vocation? Because a lot of people that end up being pastors start out, there, there are far more there are far more pastors that start out being something else yeah. than, than going, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to seminary or I'm going to go to Bible school or things like that. There's a right. lot more of those guys that end up taking it. You know, I, uh, we have a good friend of ours, uh, pastor Aaron bounds in Zanesville, Ohio. He has a degree in engineering from West Virginia tech. And so he, his, he started out to be a, an engineer and, mm -hmm. and things like that. I, the point I'm making is, you know, pastors are a lot like a, a lot of people. I'm going to go to college. This is what I want to do. What were those aspirations like when you were a, a teenager, maybe in your high school years, as you were getting ready to start adulthood, maybe going to college, things like that? I will be honest here. The only thing I, at the, by that time in my life, I knew that I had a call of God to preach. I felt it. I lived it, and I wanted nothing else except that. I didn't know what I would do. I felt I was going to be an evangelist because I preached like a crazy person, <laughs> you know, just excited, 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 that expository evangelistic style of preaching. And I thought I would be an evangelist. And so I got out of high school in my first job. I worked at a glass plant. My dad had worked there and I got on, I'd making good money, uh, at a glass plant. And, um, I was then, you know, what you'd preach out and I just did various jobs. I did attend some college, but I had no desire. No, because well, and, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you because, you know, evangelism is hard to do as a full-time occupation. Right because you're totally dependent on people inviting you to come and, and preach at their church, right. you know, and, and then you have to say, okay, well, we need X amount of dollars because we have bills to pay and things like that. It's, it's a hard occupation and I'll use that in yeah. air quotes. So I commend you for the wisdom that you had to, to continue working and in pursuing evangelism on the weekends. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that in my belief yeah. and nothing against full-time evangelists. I think that's rather no. wise because again, you have something to stabilize you from an income standpoint uh, because a lot of times evangelists are paid by the offerings that are taken right. by the church and things like that. And so it's a very different lifestyle. 
what led you to get into sales? Because again, I know that part of your story very well. You were extremely successful and had you stayed in that industry, yeah. likely you would, you would be a, a, probably a vice president of some kind. I believe a vice president of a major cell phone company because of that man, you were that successful doing that work. Yeah. I, uh, there was just, I was, I was working in the veterinary field, uh, as a, uh, technician assistant evangelizing on the weekends and so forth. My wife, Becky, uh, she was an RN. And so together, uh, we, we, we were well, you know, we were well and then evangelizing, but I kind of got burnt out doing that. And I thought, you know, uh, the door to being full-time hasn't opened. And like you said, I knew it was difficult. So I thought maybe I just need to, Lord help me. And I'll try to, you know, I know that uh, being that Billy the Priest, there's a little bit of a gift to gab. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe I can sell. And so there was an opening and I put in for it. And while I was interviewing for it, uh, the general manager at that time said, would you be interested in a supervisory position? Uh, I had only applied to be a, a floor associate in sales, but there was something in the interview that he saw and said, we want to, we want to hire you for management, but we're going to train you as a floor associate. Mm -hmm. That's where it started. And to the glory of God only while we were there. And while I was with the company, every sales record was broken, every single one of them. And I believe it is because the favor of God was upon it because that's where he wanted me to be. So he equipped me and he allowed me to do what I needed to do all the way up into being promoted to the general manager uh, by the very end. But it was all I firmly believe in the will of God to take me where I needed to go. And because of that, his favor was on it. And so because of that, there was tremendous, tremendous success. How hard was it for you to walk away from that? Because the, the, <clears throat> I'm going to go here for just a minute. Sure. Pascal. The human side, you know, when, when, and this has been a very spiritually leaning podcast, I'm not apologizing for that. You take it however you will. This it's a part of who I am, but I will tell you this. It is hard sometimes to, to separate what you want from what God wants, because Absolutely. you were, you were very successful making great money, but how hard was it for you to go to that general manager that you had a deep level of respect for and you guys became tight. I mean, you worked together very successfully. You were smashing sales records, teaching other people how to do it. Just right. things, things were really moving in your life. Right. How hard was that conversation to you for you to go to him and say, I'm, I'm going in another direction. I'm leaving and doing this and going in another direction. I hope your listeners will, I'm going to break this down. So it's understandable. God had to do it. Let me, I'll tell you exactly what happened. What happened was. I informed them at this time I was the general manager and I was working closely with the company president whose name was Todd. And uh, 
we were doing things and whatnot. And I had told him that I would be taking a pastorate. And he said, we don't want to lose you. I said, well, man, I, I love it here. Y'all y'all have uh, treated me great. You've treated me wonderful. And um, he said, where are you going? And I told him, accident, Maryland, Garrett County. Well, come to find out they had a location up here. They had a location up here. And they had also another business under the name of the same company. It wasn't quite cell phones, but it was sales. They said, I'll tell you what we'll do so we don't lose you. When you go up there, we're going to make you an assistant uh, store manager over this. We're going to pay you good. And they told me what it was, and it was good. And we're going to keep you in insurance, and you can pastor. You can do this, and we'll take care of you with full-time, basically, benefits and full-time pay, doing it just part-time so that you can pastor because we don't want to lose you. So I thought, this is God. This is God. Yeah. So I came and I preached my first sermon here at Calvary Tabernacle in Accident. The very next day, one of the ladies in the church was having a hip replacement. So I went to the hospital to be with her because I knew that's what pastors did. First week on the job. As I was sitting in the waiting room, God is my witness. The spirit of the Lord spoke to me. Brian, and he said, don't take the job. I ignored it. I thought, no, this is just me thinking, you know, yesterday I just got here. I'm excited. And you, you know, wouldn't I'm be the first person the that's done that. You know what? You wouldn't be the first person that has ignored <laughs> the voice of God saying, well, you know, that's just, let's just, let's just, just dismiss that, that thought right, right there. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but, you know, it's, it's that moment where where it's it's clear but yeah. it's not what you wanted to hear right you're right i had a family at that time of four and the church at that time here would had 22 voting members and then i thought don't take the job i was still living in kaiser trout driving basically each day 35 miles one way back and i thought how am i and the lord spoke to me a second time and said, you called Josh. That was the manager up here. He said, tell him you're not coming. A second time, I ignored it. And I sat there and I thought, this, this just can't be. The third time the Lord spoke to me. And when he did the third time, he rattled my teeth. Way down in my spirit. Way down in my soul. He spoke. And, it, and so I excused myself. And I went out in the parking lot and I went into prayer. And uh, for your listeners, this is exactly what happened. As I prayed for one of the first times in my life at that time, I saw a vision. I had never been big in seeing visions or having dreams, but I saw a vision that day. While I was praying, I saw an airplane. And that airplane was being taxied to the runway, just like you do before a flight. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he said, I used that job to taxi you to the runway because I knew you wouldn't come where I wanted you to go unless you felt like you could take care of your family financially. Then in the vision, the taxi came loose of the jet and the jet rolled down the runway and it took off. The Lord said, now trust me. 
and I will take you off. Being hmm. that that was the first time I think or second in my life I had ever truly seen a vision. I knew that I had heard from God. I made the phone call said I couldn't because I knew at that point, I knew this, this wasn't me. This was bigger than me. I made the call. Here we are years later. I never wanted for nothing. God blew it up. God took care of us. It was fine. And the Lord has taken care of the church. And the greatest thing I ever did was to be obedient to the voice of God and to the vision he gave me, even though it made my flesh uncomfortable. Yeah. Man, I love you sharing that story. I have got to go here for just a few minutes. Sure. I want to talk about the year 2017. Oh, my. Yeah. And, and, and that is a year that, and, and those of us that have known you for a long time, uh, I, I want to be very transparent, and I've known Pascal for probably 20-plus years. Yeah. Um, we thought in 2017 we were going to lose him. And... Um, we didn't, obviously. He's here. Pascal, take us through what happened to you in 2017. And I want to give you, I, I'm going to literally, I'm going to stay out of the way. And, and for the next few minutes, I just want you to, to tell folks about the miraculous healing that happened. And, and you go, you, you just take it and you go with it. On Black Friday 2016, that was November before 2017 i came down with pneumonia and i went to a doc in the box you know an urgent care and they gave me the medication that you would give for community acquired pneumonia you know i was relatively you know young adult and i uh, should beat it fairly quickly but it, the medicine didn't work. I kept getting sicker and sicker. I'd be on an antibiotic and then it would knock it down. I'd go off the antibiotic. The fever would come back. The cough would come back. I'd go back to another urgent care because I had moved now to Garrett County and I didn't really have a regular doctor, which is not smart. Everyone should have a doctor. And I didn't. So I'd go to urgent care and we'll take it. Yeah, you still got pneumonia. Let's put you on another antibiotic. And so I did this over a period of months. It got so bad, and I don't want to gross nobody out, but I'd be on the phone talking. I'd cough, and blood would run down over my hands. I would fill sinks full of blood, coughing, blood on the walls. It was really bad and nasty. Finally, I, was, I felt led to go back to my family doctor, who I'd been with for over 15 years in Kaiser. When I went back to him, Instead of just going, and I'm not against urgent cares. They serve their purpose. This is just my story. When I went back to him, he did a culture and sensitivity on the mucosa, the junk that was in my lungs. And they found out that I had a strep infection in my lungs, not a community-acquired pneumonia. They said the only way I could have gotten it was from inhalation. I, I had to have somehow swallowed food into my lungs, choked, who knows. But it's the only way you could have done. So they put me then. By now, it's, it's into March. From November, now we're in March. So they put me on the right antibiotic. And for all intents and purposes, I had to be on a couple doses of it 
because things had gotten so bad. But it did wipe it. I started feeling better. My wife gave birth to little Isaiah in March of 2017. And it seemed like for all intents and purposes, I was ready to go. I was in Florida in May and I developed a terrible headache right here on the right side of my head, right in the temple. And it was like when you call, every time I would cough, it seemed like someone took a knife and just stabbed. It was you know, the most horrendous pain. And uh, I, I laid in the hotel. I, we was at Disney. I left the park early to go home and lay down. I was just in pain. I was in so much pain that my wife was concerned about flying home on the airplane because of elevations, not knowing what was wrong with me. So we drove all the way from Florida back here to Maryland. And uh, when I came back, I went to, again, an urgent care, thinking that perhaps I just had a really bad sinus infection because in 2003, I had sinus surgery because I had chronic sinus problems. I thought sinus infection had just backed up and I didn't know. I mean, you don't think stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And so I went, they diagnosed me with that. The next day when I got up, I had begun to hallucinate. Now here's where I recall things by memory, not from my memory, but the memory of others, okay, that were with me because I, be, I began to lose some conscious thought at this point. I was hallucinating. Uh, things in the house were talking to me. I thought we were in Florida and was convinced of it. Told my wife, I don't know how she rented a house that looked like ours after we had drove all the way home. So she took me to a local hospital. The local hospital said that I had just taken too many of decongestants and whatever to just flush my system with water and uh, he should be fine. The next day I got up and my gait was off. You know, the way you walk, I was walking like a stroke patient. My speech was slurring. I was having trouble even walking. It was really bad. My wife in urgency then put me in the car, drove me to Morgantown to Ruby Memorial Hospital of WVU. They did a CT scan and there they found out that what it was was all that infection that had coursed in my lungs from November clear through the end of March had found and filtered its way through to my brain and had begun to grow. And I had developed an, 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 effect, an infection, an abscess on my right temporal lobe. He said he needs emergency surgery. They said he's bad, he's critical. They said, we can't wait, we need to do it now. They told me later that if I wouldn't have come in, I was only hours from dying. That wow. if I wouldn't have came to the hospital and I would have went to sleep that night, I'd have never woke up. So the hand of God even was on it then. They did the emergency surgery. Dr. Cifarelli, who is my neurosurgeon, came in and told my wife, he said, we scraped it, we cleaned, we did everything. That's why I have, a, probably can't see, I got a scar, starts here and it goes up into a C where they split my skull open, pulled it apart to get in there. He said the abscess had ruptured. That's what complicated it. And he said all that infection that was in the abscess, he said it had leaked out from the abscess and it is all through the ventricles of your husband's brain. 
and it has made its way into his cerebral spinal fluid. I later learned that once that infection got into the CNS or the cerebral spinal fluid, that my chance of survival medically was 1%. And later, the neurosurgeon told me that. They immediately hooked me up to drains and tubes. They had, they were monitoring the pressure in my brain, my blood pressure, uh, everything. I was having CT scans uh, twice a day. I was, I was on all kinds of medications and uh, they were checking my cerebral spinal fluid uh, daily, culturing it for infection and whatnot. Three days post my original brain surgery, three days post that, Dr. Cifarelli got a hold of my wife and said, I'm very gravely concerned about your husband's condition. We did the surgery. He said, but I am concerned he is losing consciousness. He is unarousable. He's almost totally unable to be woken up. We are concerned he's going to slip into a coma and never wake up. And he, this is his words. He said, as a last ditch, Hail Mary effort to save his life. He said, I need to go in and totally remove the entire right temporal lobe of his brain. I need to remove a portion of his brain to try to save his life. My wife, who is an RN, understood the gravity of it, but she's also a praying woman. She felt a check and uneasiness by the spirit. She then conferred with him because by this time they had infectious disease. They had run all these tests for diseases I'd never even heard of, parasites I'd never heard of. They didn't understand what in the world. They called me a lightning strike case because it shouldn't happen to somebody my age who's not immunocompromised without an underlying health condition. And so uh, when they, when they, uh, consulted with infectious disease. They said that those methods, you know, they'd never heard of them working and to just basically stay the course. That's all we could do. And Dr. Cifarelli looked at my wife and said, okay, he was not happy with her, but he said, we're racing the clock. He said, you just better know we're racing the clock. I had lost the ability to walk. I had lost the ability to have basic motor skills. My kids, when the food come in on the tray, when I was able to eat, when I was consciously able, they had to cut my food up for me and feed dad because dad couldn't feed himself. And then over a period of time, I had made enough improvement that I was able to go to a step down unit, but I still couldn't walk. I still couldn't. I needed help moving from the bed to a chair. They'd have to move me. And at that point, the thought was, if, still if, Mr. Kreitz survives this, he's going to be looking at months and months in a rehabilitation hospital, learning how to walk again, learning how to tie his shoes again, learning how to do, you know, the occupational therapy, physical therapy. But one day, oh, Ah, forgive me. One day, the Lord Jesus, through two wonderful men of God, one of them being your pastor, 
walked into my hospital room and through the prayers of the saints and the prayers of the church I pastor and your prayers and the prayers of others, they prayed for me that day. And when they prayed for me that day, the Lord Jesus Christ came into that hospital room and he touched my body. He touched my head. And when he did, when prayer was made, both drains popped out of my head. Both, they didn't pull them out. They didn't even touch them, but they popped loose. And they took me back to CT afterwards. And they said, it looks like there's a change that they're not draining. Just send him back. Let's do it again in the morning. To make a long story short, my friend, Two and a half days later, I left the hospital under my own power. Immediately, I began to be able to walk. All my motor skills came back. Everything returned. It was an absolute instantaneous miracle of God. And even Dr. Cifarelli looked me in the eyes after it was over. And he said, you know that there was more than medicine working because you had a 1% chance to live in two days. After the touch of God, I walked out of that hospital under my own power, and I'm still preaching, and I'm still living for God, and I'm still doing what he called me to do. Why? Because I am a living recipient of the miracle of Jesus Christ. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's hard not to be emotional because... Hallelujah. What happened to him, 1% chance, 1%. Can you imagine the odds are that stacked against you? But I want to talk to somebody right now. You may feel like life is stacked against you, and I'm going to have Pascal share encouragement, but, but I, I, I feel like I want to share some encouragement. You may feel like life is stacked against you. You, you may have lost someone due to COVID. You may have faced insurmountable odds. There's nothing impossible with the Lord. No, there's nothing impossible with the Lord. You may feel like I may be talking to somebody whose business is failing. We may be talking to somebody whose marriage is failing. We may be talking to someone whose health is not good. Whether you believe or not, it's very easy to just lift your eyes to the heavens and, and just ask God to come and do for you what you need him to do for you. You don't have to pray this powerful prayer. You no. don't have to... You don't have to, it's very, very simple. Just ask God to help you. You can, you can just even say to yourself, Lord, I need your help. That, that easily, that simple. And again, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10, he says of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. That's right. If he will heal Pascal Kreitz, and I've shared with you the miracle that happened at my birth when I had a hole in my lung, God healed it. If he did it for the two of us, of a truth, God is no respecter of persons. You might say, Brian, I'm not a pastor. 
Brian, I'm not even a, a man or woman of faith. It's okay. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. No. Nope. If 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 you have a voice to be able to call on God and just simply say, God, I need your help. And so, Pascal, I want you to share with folks a word of encouragement today because again, I I've I, I didn't mean to hijack it there. Your story was so incredibly powerful. I wanted to give some some context, but I want you to share with us your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. Folks, I want to simply tell you, I know that there's no doubt people that are on this podcast that are skeptical, that maybe don't even believe Jesus Christ, don't believe, but let me tell you, it's real. Let me tell you, whether you believe in him or not, he loves you. And I want you to know, regardless of where you are in life, that he cares and he is able. You take it from somebody that absolutely knows I received his touch. In 2019, following that, I watched as Jesus Christ healed over 1,000 medical diseases, abnormalities, incurable things. I could, I could, I could like a laundry list, but for the sake of time, I won't do it. But I want to tell you this, perhaps there's Somebody out there that says, yeah, but I'm a sinner and I this and I that and I the other. Let me remind you of something that Jesus Christ going to the cross makes it able for you to come to him. It makes it able for you to come to him. He's not going to push you away. He loves you. And perhaps there's someone out there and you're saying, I got a problem with belief. I don't know. I just don't know. I just, I want to remind you of a story in the Bible. Jesus Christ came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There was a begging father at the bottom of that mountain that was waiting on Jesus because he had a son that was sorely and severely vexed by a demonic spirit. And that young boy would throw himself into fire. He would throw himself in the water, and 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 the, the, the father was absolutely at his wit's end. And he told Jesus, he said, Jesus, can you please help my boy? Can you please help him? He said, I brought him to your disciples, and they could do nothing with him. First thing I want to tell you is don't, don't try to get help from religion. Get help from Jesus Christ. Yes. Jesus it's all about Jesus. It's not about religion. It's not about, it's about Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. The man was honest. And this is where no doubt some of you are. Because you've dealt with it so long. You've been told so many things. You've been let down so many times. The man looked at him and he said, Lord, I do believe. But he said, help thou my unbelief because there's a part of me that just don't believe i do believe in you but i just don't know that i believe that you'll do it jesus notice what he did not do he did not tell that man to go home read the scripture when you get a little bit more faith then come back and let me see what i can do for you he didn't tell that man because you don't fully believe go to the priest Go to the synagogue and so forth. And then when you get everything right, then come back. No, Jesus said, bring me the boy, bring me the boy. And when he did, he healed him 
instantly and presented him back to his father. I just want to tell somebody, just because you've got some humanity showing doesn't mean that God is going to withhold his touch, his blessing, or his healing from you. He loves you enough that he will override your doubt. He will override the problems in your own mind, and he will touch you to show you that he loves you. My goodness, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. Uh, man, I, I, I'm just, I, I, I can't add anything else other than to say thank you for sharing your story. Tell folks how they can connect with you because I know they're going to want to connect with you. Um, and, and again, if, if you're dealing with something, reach out to myself, reach out to Pascal. We'll pray with you. Sure. We, we'll go before the Lord for you. Uh, but Pascal, tell folks how they can connect with you and your church. I guess an easy way is right through Facebook. I mean, uh, I'm on Facebook as Pascal, P-A-S-C-A-L, last name Kreitz, C-R-I-T-E-S. And you can send me a message through Messenger. You can try to send me friend requests, you know, whatever the case uh, may be. Our church, Calvary Tabernacle, is on Facebook. It's under Calvary Tabernacle Accident Campus, Calvary Tabernacle Oakland Campus, Calvary Tabernacle Lavelle, L-A-V-A-L-E Campus. And all three of those are just Facebook pages of our church. And you can connect with us instantly that way. You can message the individual church. You can message me. Uh, that's that's really the quickest way to do it. And please mention when you do that, mention that you heard this conversation that we're having today. That way, um, you know, let, let Pascal know how his story has impacted you. And, and again, folks, this is why we have the Intentional Encourager podcast is for stories like this. Because again, I want to reiterate this, this point before we go. If God did it for Pascal, that's right. He can do it for you. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an evangelist. No. You don't have to be anybody important. You don't have to be anybody rich or famous. No. If God would do it for him and God will do it for me, God will do it for you. And so, man, Pascal, from the bottom of my heart, bro, I am honored that you took time to tell your story. I love you, man. And uh, every, you. every time I see you, I am reminded that God can do the impossible. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Encourage podcast. Thank you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.